Hello, and welcome to the Silicon Alley Podcast. Super excited you could join me today. I'm William Glass, CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and of course, your host of the Silicon Alley Podcast. Now, on the Silicon Alley Podcast, I talk to entrepreneurs and top performers to understand what it truly takes to grow and scale a business. You'll get actionable advice that you can apply in your own business and life. Now, on today's episode, I sit down with Ned Lamagora, serial tech entrepreneur, board member at the MIT Enterprise Forum in New York City, and founder of Cape Ann Development. But before I jump into Ned's full bio and what you can expect on today's episode, if you have not already, please make sure to subscribe and follow the Silicon Alley podcast so that you get notified when a new episode drops every Friday. And of course, if you hear something that you like, be sure to share the episode with others on social media, text, email, or however you see fit. So today's guest, Ned Lamagora with Lamagora spelled L-O-M-I-G-O-R-A, is a longtime serial entrepreneur who discovered his love for startups while developing auto ID, RFID, say that 10 times fast, technology at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. His work there had a direct correlation with the creation of RFID technology that was later adopted by the electronic product code as a global standard. After a stint at several software companies and increasing levels of responsibility, Ned co-founded his first startup in the computational biotech space with generous funding from the company he was working with at the time. After a successful exit, Ned took on a co-founder and CEO role of another startup in the publishing industry. And after a successful exit out of that venture, Ned was asked to run a company in the biotech equipment space. After several years in that role, Ned felt a strong pull back to his software roots. So he started his current company, Cape Ann Tech. The impetus that started Cape Ann Tech was Ned's frustration with the overly transactional nature of outsourced software development services businesses. Cape Ann Tech provides exceptional quality software with a mission to develop long-term partnerships with all of its clients. Cape Ann Tech clients range from Fortune 500 companies to startups. So on today's episode, Ned walks us through how to develop a minimum viable product, the common pitfalls with MVPs, and why it is so crucial when developing a new product. We spend the last 20 minutes or so really diving deep into the personal finance space and some of the challenges with income inequality that face both individuals and the American democracy. So without further ado, let's get into today's wide-ranging episode with the Ned Lamagora. You got no time to waste, but still you hesitate. Caught in a circle saying I'll never leave this place. Ned, welcome to the Silicon Alley Podcast. Super excited to have you on today. Thank you, William. Glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we had the pleasure of connecting in New York City at a couple different meetups uh, and having some different conversations. And you're very involved in the tech scene, both enterprise as well as startup scene. Um, and one of the things that we talked about when we first met was sort of the reason why you started your company, Cape Ann Development. I'd love to understand what the problem in the market that you saw that led you to uh, start this, this company. So, uh, Ned, take it away. Thank you, William. So the most important problem that I believe I was solving is, um, and this is going back in, into my own experience working with uh, offshore companies, outsourced companies, uh, when I was hiring them, when I was on the other side, is that, you know, they bring a lot of value and they help a lot and you can't do certain things without them. But what I really wanted to do is take it a step further. I wanted to really develop a more intimate relationship where you know, I would uh, be able to, um, you know, let them, you know, kind of get more involved and trust them more. Uh, but so, for some reason, and I worked with many of them, um, that never panned out. Um, you know, I always had to supervise a lot. I always have to oversee what they were doing. 
Um, so there was that lack of like, you know, involvement. Um, and I wouldn't say trust because we had professional trust and, you know, we had mechanisms of like reporting and uh, checking on the work. So that wasn't an issue. It was more like transactional type of relationship. So I wanted to change that with KPAN. I wanted to create a company that wasn't just transactional in nature. Because once we engage with the client, I really wanted our team to become part of their team. I wanted our team to really consume the, um, the vision, not just the uh, requirements uh, and then build something out of it mechanically. I wanted them to consume the vision and then really um, buy into that vision and help them really grow. So um, in the beginning, we really connected well with startups. Uh, first, it was practical uh, because it was easier than chasing large companies. The cycles were much smaller, shorter. Um, and startups were very creative in their, obviously, ideas were new and uh, yeah. so it was a little bit easier. And then later we also started to get into enterprises. But that was the key, you know, for me, the reason was I wanted to create a company and I, will, I was also, it was a good timing. I just exited one company. I was looking for another to, to start. I was looking for co-founders and then I uh, met somebody who introduced me to this model that they used to build their own company, which is offshore model, which I never really used before. Um, personally, like never, um, you know, had that service business. So I decided to try because I had a lot of contacts that I believe needed uh, this type of service. Service is more uh, involvement, more, you know, like empathy versus just transaction. So that's, that's really the motivation, it, the impetus for starting it. For starting campaign. So can you define offshore for folks that maybe aren't quite as familiar, um, entrepreneurs that maybe aren't necessarily in technology, but have a tech idea that have, that aren't really familiar with what offshore is and sort of your approach to it that um, is maybe a little different that's in the market than, than what is in the marketplace. Right. Well, in, you know, a lot of people can empathize right now because um, before COVID-19, um, you know, uh, we were doing Zoom just like this, right? And because my team is in uh, Bosnia, I have three offices there. Uh, so it's a six, six hour time difference. Uh, so my team was there and we were doing, you know, video conferencing. And now everybody's doing video conferencing. So <laughs> we actually see how it worked for us before COVID-19. Um, and so every time we get engaged with a new client, um, you know, I, I, I want our team to really first spend a lot of time on learning and asking questions. So it's a, it's a lot more consulting in the beginning than development okay. um, to get the salient points and to also challenge some of the assumptions before we start building something, before we actually develop, uh, you know, the, the whole infrastructure, the sprints, the, you know, the low level tasks and all that. So, okay. No, no, I appreciate Yeah, that, that makes sense and appreciate the context and definitely want to dive more into that model. But uh, you mentioned that you just exited a company and was that company Zine specifically? And what, what was that process like of building company, exiting it and then starting another? Yes, it was. Uh, so th the process was what I came to that company as a co-founder, uh, the CEO um, later uh, moved on. I bought the CEO out um, because I didn't believe in the vision, um, that original vision of the company, um, and just there wasn't market traction. So over time, uh, we decided that I would take over and buy the original founder out. So I became the CEO, and I created a different model um, that was more successful. And 
uh, first model was catering to individual uh, authors. Okay. And the new model that I created was uh, create, uh, catered more to publishers, lower, smaller publishers. Um, so there's a specific niche that I was targeting that uh, had a potential. And so at the end, the way I exit is, is to um, create, a mo create the uh, solution that a, that a publisher could use to um, offer to their authors instead of me going and you know, chasing individual authors. So that was a paradigm shift and pivot. Um, I would say that was, that was critical. You know, uh, we had the technology, it just wasn't marketed properly. So I used the same technology, edit a few things, change it, uh, so that uh, you can actually uh, uh, use it as a platform instead of a singular product. Yeah. And then as a platform, as a base, you can actually then uh, be a hub where you know authors can be spokes and use a platform in that sense. So that, that was the game changer. No, that's that's awesome. And that's that's interesting, the approach of going in and buying an existing technology and repurposing it. So what led you to go that route versus just saying, hey, this is an interesting idea. I think I can do it better. Let me go build it myself. Well, one is ethical. Um, I, I wouldn't want to copy someone else's idea. Second is the ego. I don't want to copy something because I always believe, you know, if I have to copy, then I don't have original ideas to to Sure myself so that's not attractive to me i'm not as interested um but what is interested interesting is i like to fix things so you know i'm an engineer by background so if i see something and if i see that i could change it and fix it and make it better um that's my you know instinct to do and uh, that's what i saw with this platform i actually saw something you know this um, previous ceo was trying to launch this for a very long time and, and really um, uh, used up a lot of resources. And that's another thing I did when I came on uh, originally is to really reduce the spend and, um, you know, kind of normalize the, the, the use of resources, right? And it's also because I was very technical um, and I knew how, what sh things should cost and what you should get for the money that you pay. <laughs> So that was a really good skill that was um, useful. So I, you know, I stopped the bleeding. I, you know, lowered the cost on the on the operational side, and then I started to see vision as I was really getting more involved. Gotcha. Okay. So have you always had that sort of tinkering, fixing mindset of where you want to you want to fix things? Uh, yes. I mean, I went to MIT, so. <laughs> You don't just stumble, stumble onto doors of MIT. You have to kind of uh, show some track record and, and some affinity, uh, propensity for certain things like building, fixing, troubleshooting, re-engineering things. So um, yes, I, I certainly, at MIT, I invented something very new that became a worldwide standard. So this is not a new thing to me. I've done things like that in the past. Um, and, you know, before MIT as a kid, you know, um, I mean, I liked sports. I wasn't just into science or engineering, but I did other things as well. I always tried new things. Even in sports, I tried new, say, dribble and basketball. So I always tried to improve on something. I was never happy with how, you know, I was doing things. So no matter how many times I did something, I always try a new way to do it. So that, I guess that's just my nature. I always try to improve.
Gotcha. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense in how you approach the business from that lens of wanting to, to take something that's, that you see potential in and kind of fix it and tweak it and get it to where it wants to, where it should be and where you see the vision of the company going. So during that process, you mentioned that um, one of the reasons that led you to start KPN development was this challenge with outsourcing, with, with outsourcing and, and the kind of transactional nature of um, hiring outside developers for a company. Is this uh, did you see that specifically in Zine, and then and how did that impact you making that decision and and um, you know starting Cape Ann once you once you troubleshooted that in Zine? No, actually that happened um, uh, two companies before and three companies before. So I had experience working with offshore companies in three different companies. Okay, um, and and these were all larger companies where and one of them was. Um, a startup, but you know, I was on the other side and I managed very large teams for very large clients. These are like Fortune 100 clients that I managed teams for. Um, and these developers were from all over the world. I, I don't want to name different countries because I don't want to seem biased or anything like that. Um, so th this is where my experience came from. So it wasn't really from Zine. Zine was uh, okay. actually worked with, uh, we, we did some work with the, you know, outside developer, but it was a local developer. So this is, it's, it, it's, there's some difference in working with some local developers. So it's also could be outsourced, but local and outsourced, outsourced and offshore. Um, there are complexity in the offshore. So yes, in, in terms of Zine, um, I would just say it wasn't complex enough to, uh, you know, make an example, okay. but I'll just say that uh, there is a reason why I stopped the bleeding because the, you know, the spend on that particular develop, developer and the output were not proportional. So, gotcha. um, and then at then the end, <clears throat> transaction came, it, it came out to a transaction and a contract versus, you know, handshake and gentleman's agreement. And yes, even in that little example, there's still that like more of a antagonistic relationship between okay. somebody who's hiring the offshore team or outsource team and somebody who's building. So yeah, even there but on much big, bigger scale more international and larger scale in terms of number of people I managed over you know over 100 people um, the, the emphasis is really huge and, and okay. some of the technical challenges become really apparent uh, on these themes as, as, an, as a result of that cultural um, issue that I said you know people are removed from really the mission of the project so you have People on the front, they're talking to you, managers, mm -hmm. and, and on the back, you don't even, most of the time, you don't even know who's building anything. They can be changing developers daily, weekly, and you can see that from the code that you receive, the quality of the code, mm -hmm. um, and inconsistency in the code. Uh, and sometimes you're not even allowed to talk to the developers. Uh, so that's what I was referring when I said transactional nature of relationship, and you know, at hands length. So I didn't really like that. I really wanted to get involved okay. and build more closer relationship and more trust, but it just didn't work in my previous, my previous experiences. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And obviously if people are being moved in and out, that that's going to create challenges with the quality of the code and what you're receiving back in terms of work. So what are some of those um, challenges that you see? And specifically, I want to move the conversation to uh, building a minimum viable product, which um, is obviously really important if you are a startup and 
trying to prove your concept and build customers and then eventually, you know, build your business. So can you talk to me about some of the challenges as, as we start talking about building an MVP for entrepreneurs that are um, trying to, you know, build their first tech product? And it is a simple concept, but it's often misunderstood. But any conversation about MVP um, has to start uh, with uh, the goals of a, of a startup, right? That wants, okay. and, and I will call this like a startup that hasn't launched yet. Startup that is just, um, has an intention of building an MVP, right? Yeah. So before we get into technicals of how to do MVP, um, Let's, let's talk about what MVP serves, right? What purpose it serves. So as a pre-launch startup, your goals are very simple. It have to be very laser focused. Um, your goal uh, should be to launch um, your startup quickly, launch your product, and let's call this MVP. Um, the other um, goal as important is to get customers as soon as possible. As a matter of fact, yeah. you will start to look for customers at the same time when you're starting to build your MVP or design your MVP. Yeah. And then once the, your customers have uh, interactions with your MVP, get customer feedback, right? Mm -hmm. Then the next step that wraps the whole thing up is iteration, constant iteration on the product. And that's all based on feedback. And I'll go into detail on how do you actually do that. Yeah. But things before you even um, you know, do that. Now, the critical thing is what I said was the first one. I said you have to do MVP quickly. You have to, you have to launch quickly. Um, and there are certain steps and there are certain, you know, methods that you can use and um, they work, right? Um, and, and I'm only talking about startups. Now, you, there are MVPs in uh, enterprise environments and I can talk about that later because I also have experience working there and it is okay. different than experience that startups go through. Um, so in terms of how to do it quickly, uh, the most important thing is to limit the time, give yourself a limited of time. Say, I will build this in two, say three weeks, okay. or whatever the time interval is. And you have to really, uh, you know, finish by that date, right? No exceptions. So that's one way to do it. So, so time bound your, your uh, building of MVP. Okay. Other thing that's very simple, but uh, many times people don't do this, um, is to write, physically write down everything that you're going to put into your MVP, right? You have to document it, right? You have to, in front of you, have to have it in front of you. You have to, everyone needs to know what goes in. It has to be the list, right? It has to exist. You, it cannot be in your head and nothing that is on, on that list should be, considered to be put into MVP, right? Only things on that list. So write a list, as simple as it sounds, most of the time it doesn't happen. And very often, um, always I would say, you, are, you will get into your first, second week and you realize that, you know, looking at how much time you have left, you will realize that you, there's no way you're going to finish things that you wrote on your spec, right? Because we always overestimate how, how much time something will take. And especially uh, it's true when you're building something very new, right? And you have a new team to work with, for example. Yeah. So that is another thing. You have to be really uh, diligent and disciplined about cutting your um, specifications. Whatever you specified, you have to start cutting, right? 
doesn't matter. At some point, you'll start cutting important things. But you have to yeah. cut. So remember, you're going for time here, right? Mm -hmm. Not for a number of things. Um, and then I would say overlaying all that is um, what can extend the time and, and jeopardize the time or, or time delivery of the MVP is that usually um, people that are building it get really uh, emotionally attached to it, right? They think it's really important. They're really uh, a fond of it. And they, they look at it as, a, as an art piece, right? There's something really of high significance. It shouldn't be, right? Yeah. It is the first thing that you throw out there and it is, um, it has to be quick and dirty, right? It, and should be bad. And you, you shouldn't be surprised to put something bad out there, right? But a lot of times, you know, we have this, we can't disassociate emotional context. So because we are creating something, we really want it to look, it to look good. Mm -hmm. uh, and we really want approval from people, from customers. We really, you know, attach to it emotionally. So that is a danger because the more attachment you give, the more you're trying to perfect it and that more time it takes to do that. Yeah. Do you have advice to, to take, like how to, how to avoid that trap of getting super emotionally attached to it? Oh, um, it is harder, harder said than done, right? Yeah. Um, you, you know, um, <laughs> there's, there's really like, it could be probably another, you know, uh, kind of talk altogether. Um, what's important is it's harder to do it when you have, say, two co-founders, like two founders in a room and building together. Um, very hard when you're a single founder, right? Uh, a little bit harder when they're two founders because chances are, you know, they 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 have very similar idea what should be, and they're both sharing the work, so they both have this, you know, attachment issue. Um, when the team is a little bit larger, it's a little bit easier. Um, that's why advisors and you know external parties would be very helpful. However, okay. you have to let them do this like you have to let them be critical of your work and critical of your progress yeah. so if, if good good startups find advisors early on before they even build anything right uh, because they know these first initial steps are really critical right because morale falls if you build something really crappy in the beginning or you say spend too much time with something you could have spent a few weeks on um, and so good you know, founders know to get advisors, get people to keep him in check, um, mm -hmm. those emotional attachment, and to really push them through the steps that they said they would do, right? Uh, they can't yeah. make it do it, but they can be reminders of, say, you committed to do this by this date, and now I see that you're making changes, endless changes to this feature, and you got to move on, right? You got to, yeah. kind of like, a, you know, can't get over your old girlfriend or boyfriend, and your best friend or friends are coming in. Sometimes it's very hard, right? Because okay. you're not emotional. So, but you have to you have to find ways to do it for externally. That works best externally. Okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. So avoiding that emotional trap. So we've talked about those those kind of four four steps. So we get over the emotion. We've got we're getting feedback. Talk to me about that next phase, the iteration and actually implementing feedback and, and how that part of the MVP process works. All right. Well, it, it, it could be very simple, 
right? The only thing you want in your feedback, right? The only thing you're looking for is feedback on does this MVP, does this um, product or features in the product, does this solve customer's problem? The only point of, you know, of this feedback is to figure out if what you build solves customer problem, right? So you always have two things that um, are critical. One is you have to have a really good understanding of the problem you're solving. If you don't have that, you have to go back and really understand it because you can't start building MVP um, without knowing the problem you're solving. So, okay. as you, right. So as you go through this process of you built something, um, you have to get feedback. Well, really the feedback is about, does it really solve the problem or not? That's the yeah. only thing you care about. Nothing else really matters. Um, so that, okay. that's really the most important. It's not much to it, um, but you have to also be able to um, sift through the, all the noise and extra information, right? And really focus yeah. on just the problem, whether, okay. whether, you know, whether that's solving or not solving the problem. Makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Now, Ned, I've got a question for you. So maybe we've identified a problem how do we how do we know if it's we're not solving the problem or we're just we're targeting the wrong people if that makes sense all right so if you already before you built an mvp you would talk to a group of users to find out what the problem is right okay and you will build an mvp to solve their problems so in your example if you're getting the users are not giving you good feedback that means you didn't solve their problem. You didn't build something, right? You okay. built the wrong solution to the problem. You should be changing users. You shouldn't be changing the problem. You should be changing what you built, the solution, because that is what doesn't work, right? Okay. But that is the issue, right? So that, all, that just tells you that you didn't build the solution to their problem. Uh, so so when, you know, when people talk about pivoting here and there, you don't pivot because with the belief you have a great solution, but customers just don't understand it, right? That's the wrong okay. way to think about pivot. You pivot differently, right? You pivot when you find out what customers want and you build something they don't and you pivot to something that should be, you know, solving their problem. That is the pivot, not the other way around. Gotcha. No, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I appreciate you clarifying that. Ned, what other common problems or mistakes do you see uh, startups making when they're when they're building an MVP or approaching the the MVP process? I would say that the number one problem is they start by using um, users or potential customers what they want, like what features do you want in the product, thinking that if they just build what they want, they'll use it. That is completely wrong. Um, Okay. What they need to really focus on is finding out what the problems people have. If people tell you what they want, you'll never get iPhone, right? This is famous. <laughs> like if I ask people what they wanted, they would never tell me they need an iPhone. So you don't ask people what they want. You ask them what problems they have. It goes back to what I just said. It's consistent to, you know, finding the problem, defining it, understanding it. Building a solution. Don't change the user base because you want to solve problem for this particular user base. I'll talk about a little bit in terms of user base because first time you want to build an MVP, you will not address every user's need in that uh, spectrum of users that you're looking. You're looking at very narrow sliver of users in the beginning, right? You can't yeah. satisfy all of it, but that's a different issue. 
right? Yeah. The most important thing is never ask them what, they, what features they want. That's your job to figure, right? Okay. Your job is to tell you and define the problem that they have. And then it's your job to go back and sit, take that problem, understand the problem, and build a product with features that will address that problem. Gotcha. No, that makes a lot of sense. And it's easy to get into the, hey, what do you want? And, you know, go, I'll go build X, Y, and Z. And then everyone's, everyone's what their wants or needs changes. And it doesn't actually solve the problem because they didn't necessarily really think about what their problem is. You're addressing one more issue that is uh, under, uh, underneath that we haven't really touched on. But a lot of startup um, founders and, and, you know, they're trying to please customers. And I think this is in human you know, this is our nature. We try to be nice and we're trying to please, we try to give people what they want. And we believe by that approach, we will get their, their um, you know, uh, uh, affection and get their loyalty. You know, they like our product, they like us. But that's not really what, what happens, right? Um, it, it is a fallacy. So you have to really be almost like surgically cold, right? You go to surgery, um, you don't think about whether the patient is going to survive or die. You have to think about what is the best way to do the surgery, right? And that's how you have to approach building an MVP, finding the problem, identifying the problem, you know, ignoring the noise and, and all the suggestions. Because if, if you are good at what you do and if you have what it takes, it, you will come up with a solution. I love that. Yeah, I know that, that makes sense being very very focused on that problem and laser focused on that versus all the other things that could happen or, you know, making sure that you please everyone. I think that that's really, really important. Ned, I guess, how do you know once your MVP, if you've built an MVP, you, it seems like you're getting some traction. How do you know if you've succeeded in that process? Cause as you mentioned, it's an iteration, right? So, so how do, how do I know, how do I know if, if the product that we've built is, is great? So basically asking how do we know if we have a product market fit, right? Which is another um, kind of phrase that people use a lot. Um, well, it, it should be simple. It, it mostly, in most cases, it really doesn't happen, right? First time you build an MVP, pretty much never happens. But as you build, you, what you will notice, if you're building toward the solution, if you're solving the right problem with the right solution, what you will notice that people will start using your product mm -hmm. so much, right? That you will actually start to focus more on just keeping it alive, keeping it up and running, than you will be focusing on, you know, adding things to and, and enhancing the product and doing all the other things, right? So when you're in that situation, that's a great situation to be in. That's, that's, there's nothing better than just trying to keep up with the demand, right? That's how yeah. you, right? Yeah, no, I like that. I like that as a measurement when you get to the point where you can't focus on building new features or tweaking things and it's more just servicing the product, then you've, you found yes. something because people are using it. They're, they've got needs, they're finding their own, you mm -hmm. know, problems or things that they want solved within the product. Yeah. I like yeah. that. I think that's a really good barometer. And yeah, and I have some really good analogies there. Like, you know, you, you, going back to solving the problem to digress a little bit, you know, a lot of great companies started very simply, right? Um, and, you know, I don't know if you know uh, who's coming up to have an IPO. I, Airbnb is talking about going IPO, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know if you remember, uh, you probably may not, but do you remember how Airbnb started? 
What, so, what was your first iteration? Well, I think it wasn't it. Uh, there was a, a conference or something, and they couldn't pay their own rent, so they decided to rent out their their own space to test the concept, and that's where the idea came from. Right, but do you know what their say first website looked like? Do you, do you can you remember or do you know how what it did? No, I don't. I don't remember. I'll just paint a picture for you. So you're looking at the website that has pictures of a row of houses in, in San Francisco. I know it because I've been on this street in San Francisco. So it's just a row of houses and you basically don't have anywhere, there's no map. So you can't see on the map where the house is. There's no payment, there's, you can't pay to a person that you're going to buy a, a, a rent a space from, right? And those are the two th essential things that you would think you cannot launch with, without, right? Those are yeah. the things that they didn't have. So you basically have to go there, no maps, right? You have to find it elsewhere, use another map. Um, and then when you get there, you have to pay the landlord uh, in person, <laughs> which is unheard of now. You wouldn't even yeah. it now. Um, and yeah, so there's a, it's just, it just gives you an example. It's a very simple website, nothing to it really. It just says, you know, where do you want to travel? Put a destination. And it gives you listings in that uh, zip code, right? Or okay. that's it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, obviously you think about Airbnb now, and if you were going to try to build something that's similar, you would think you need all these different features and, and every everything else. But, yeah, that's interesting when you bring it down to, like, what essentially was Airbnb doing? It was matching supply and demand. Absolutely. Very And very simply, they like you said, they were – they were doing this as to make some extra money and they were working part-time. Nobody was in this full time. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, Ned. In, in terms of applying this from a like enterprise perspective, can mm -hmm. you talk about the nuances between an MVP as a startup and an MVP from an enterprise perspective? Yeah, there's definitely a big difference there. And the major difference is that with a startup, you know, you're king of your own kingdom, right? So you can decide how this MVP is going to be built. Um, but in my experience, I worked because my, my business is um, service business. So we build uh, software for other companies. We have to go there and work with a client. So mm -hmm. client comes in meetings and we sit with down with the client. They want to build an MVP. Um, it doesn't go the same way I describe it, right? Um, okay. Clients still, even though they say they want expertise and they want guidance on how to build an MVP, you know, and I mentioned about features and how you shouldn't take features from the clients, you should take their problems. As much as you try to, you know, push back and really um, guide the discussion uh, on, in, in direction of a problem, Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, people just believe that they know that they absolutely have to have this problem or no problem feature on the MVP, right? And before you know it, you're, you embellish this MVP with things that they all believe it will really be necessary. And that's the difference because you don't, you're not, um, you know, you, you can push back so much mm -hmm. and you're a vendor, right? So you don't have that relationship, even though we have really good relationship, even with you know, they're still the client and they're still, it's still their model, their business, right? That they're trying to, even though they're building something new, this is very different than you as your own startup, you know, doing something. So that, that, and so what happens is that not really an MVP. It's okay. more 
sort of like a mix of an MVP, which is somewhat uh, new, but there's a lot of things that people already preconceived in their heads, right? They yeah. have really, it doesn't necessarily solve the problem. They think it does. Uh, and it's really there because of the hierarchy or influence and not because it's really good idea, right? So yeah. sometimes, and sometimes it could be both. Sometimes it could turn out to be a good idea, but as a rule of thumb, um, that is not the case. You know, it's, it's just more like, you know, um, they just want something and it, they want it to be theirs and yeah. they have a pool in the, in the team. And it ends up being there. And, you know, usually you trim it down, you, you look at that model and you start using. And also the big difference is obviously a lot of enterprise customers we work with, a lot of customers are the internal customers. So when you talk to a company that's 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 people, you have a huge audience, for example, in different departments, right? You don't have necessarily outside. But, you know, sometimes you have a mix of both. And those are even more complex. So we have situations where our clients are selling their product to outside customers, but then they have internal users that are using the product on the back end, mm. uh, from purchase order to fulfillment to accounting, right? So that has to be taken into account, but it's depending on the front end that they have with on the commerce side, the commerce site, uh, where information is coming from, all the, all the quotes, yeah. uh, et cetera. So it becomes a lot more complex. Um, and another thing about MVP, and I just want to add it because, you know, I made it look like it's so simple and quick and easy. There are exceptions that are clearly obvious exceptions um, mm -hmm. to being a, a very quick uh, thing to do, right? And those are in the regulated industries, right? So banking, insurance, right? You can't have quick MVP because it takes a lot of time to get something through, right? Yeah. It's not just building something and putting out there, right? Regulations take time. So by nature of the industry, uh, it's going to slow MVP process down. Uh, in, in other industries, for example, um, building software is faster, but building, say, uh, a molecule, right? A compound, a drug, uh, you know, that takes longer yeah. time. So you can't really push that through very quickly. However, it's an interesting story because one of the startups I was um, uh, co-founded uh, did drug discovery, but using uh, computa com computation, so it was computational drug discovery startup, right? So okay. we, our idea was to really in, in, enhance and, and also um, improve the process, improve the speed of the process of high throughput screening that took a lot of time and a lot of compounds and a lot of money to do uh, by doing it computationally. So, you know, to increase the speed. Right. So, yeah, but that's, that's an exception. So that's trying to push the process that usually is very lengthy into shorter business. Just, just a side note that, you know, that would be a really good tool for an MVP type of approach where you, you know, get something really quickly, do the existing testing, see if it works, it doesn't then go back, but you can iterate very quickly versus doing it physically. Ned, I'm curious, can you share a story of a, of a company that you've worked with that has done a really good job, you know, approaching an MVP and, and building an MVP? Do you have any examples that, that you can share? So a recent startup was really interesting. I was working with a fintech startup and still working with them. You know, they started from scratch. They needed to build an MVP. And um, I kind of guided them a little bit. The first step they took was, 
you know, they kind of went off on their own because they had some, um, you know, tools that they could do the mock-ups themselves. It wasn't, we didn't build actually anything at that point. Uh, it was just mock-ups. Uh, but, you know, when you're building an MVP, even mock-ups, you know, show the, the idea and vision. So they came back and then I immediately saw clutter, right? Even though you would think it's very simple, I started asking questions like, so why do you want this here? And by asking questions why, meaning like, what is the problem you're trying to solve? I just realized that they were editing things just because they looked cool. And it was an extension, a browser extension. It had to do with, um, you know, credit card offers, depending on what you're buying and, um, you know, choosing the right card to buy with, right? But it just had like almost too much information and it went into like almost like a marketing, you know, uh, a, like a page versus you know, just like, here's a card you need and here's why and end it. Because the problem was like, how do I optimize using my different cards for, you know, points or for cashback or for other deals, right? Sure. That was, that's the problem you're trying to solve. You're trying to save the money and get the best, more sufficient deal that you can given you have multiple cards. So a system tells you how to do it. That's the, that's the you know, that's how you solve it, right? System will tell you and your problem is like, well, I, you know, I, I have a trouble trying to figure out how to pay, how to optimize my cards. But then, you know, in addition to that, they put this and this and that, but they were very good at taking feedback and working with us and before they even launched the client. So, that, so, so I'm not saying they didn't do it well, they did it pretty well because they did it very quickly. It only took him one week to do a mock-up and one week we built it in a week. And then in the parallel, they were looking for clients. They went on Craigslist and they found clients, um, potential client customers to use it. Some did it, uh, they just interviewed some and some paid to use the product. And within three or four weeks, they had actual plugin that they could launch, um, give password to users. Obviously, they have to log in, create an account. And as they do, they had a limited use for one type of browser, which is again, MVP, very specific. Sure. Um, and they had only, I believe, uh, three credit cards. If I can't, if I remember correct. Yeah, we had three credit cards only um, that we covered. And system was able to pick the best deal and give them the best savings or the points or whatever case might be and give an explanation. And all the other fat was taken up. It was very quick. And so that was a successful one where it didn't take that much time. They were very disciplined about time. They were very good about feedback, working with, with, uh, with me, uh, with my team. Um, and they were very good at recruiting customers very quickly. Yeah. So those are the really positive things. No, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate you sharing that story and chunking it down because, yeah, there, there's so much that you could do with that and sticking to three cards, one browser, talking yeah. to people at, at the same time. It kind of goes back to everything that you hit on of, of how you should approach your MVP process. Ned, in terms of working with uh, a firm similar to yours, an outsourcing firm, what are some of the best practices that startups or enterprise customers should, should take when engaging you know, a partner such as yourself, such as Cape Ann? I mean, I wrote a, a paper on this and how to really identify a strategic vendor because I believe that unless it's something that's really uh, short term, 
um, any other engagement should be taken really seriously, like really like building a relationship. So my advice was uh, focus on a few key factors. One is that does the vendor have the ex that experience and track record of working long term mm -hmm. with clients? So how many clients do they have that they worked for with for say more than three years? Okay. Okay. Given that your company is older than three years. Uh, second is. Uh, how much access are you going to actually have once you start working with the developers? That goes both in the interview process, right? Mm -hmm. Talk when you get to know people, as well as the down the road. Like, so we start a project and, you know, I interview developers and they want a project, you put a project manager and I don't even know the developer, they don't even see the developers, they never get me access to it. What does that tell me, right? That you I always emphasize, like, you make sure that you have access to developers. Um, on our side, that made uh, us always look for developers that are technically savvy and very good at communication. So they're obviously language skills have to be great, but just be, beyond, you know, brute language skills, they have to have a good customer uh, interaction skills. So that, that is harder, to, much harder to find, which made us better because think about that. That's what we're looking for. A developer, a geek who knows how to code, who can speak to a client and who can actually carry their own and make client happy. I mean, that's like, right, a yeah. unicorn, right? <laughs> so you have a bunch of unicorns. So, but I do suggest that people focus on that because value you extract from that kind of relationship is, is immense, right? Much bigger than your, you know, arm's length relationship. Um, you know, and, and in terms of um, in terms of commitment, uh, I would say look for companies that will guarantee something, right? If I come to you and say I'm going to charge you X dollars per hour, and I'll give you an estimate, but I may change that estimate later, I'm just giving you just a number that you like to hear. I'm not giving you a real number because obviously it's my interest to make that number look small at the beginning. And many companies do that, right? They just kind of give you an estimate and hours here and there. And it also becomes a very hard to track in accounting of it and all that. When you give a customer a firm commitment, you're gonna build something and it doesn't work all the time because for example, it doesn't have to work all the time because if you have a retainer, if you work with a client for a long term, which we have many, many instances, once they get to know us, they just want us on a retainer. So it's like a monthly payment, uh, you know, and we work full time basis how many developers but when you're starting to build that relationship first few contracts you want to say we will promise the cost the the, the price will not go over this number and unless you increase and in, in your scope we will not go over this number and any mistakes we've made in estimation we'll observe it ourselves so it, unless you have that kind of commitment um and, and share the risk then you know you're not really again you're not willing to invest in the relationship so those are some of the ideas of, of, of what I would suggest people do. And also talk to clients when you're, in, you know, finding out. A lot of times when I say, hey, you know, you can talk to my client here. So, so it seems like some people, some new clients uh, are actually, I don't know if it's a maybe laziness or maybe just kind of like they trust me too much to not do it. But they kind of like, oh, yeah, I don't have to talk to your clients. You know, I see and. I'm like, I always recommend like, yeah, yeah, but you know, here, I will, I'll be glad to share. Um, and I know why that is because sometimes, you know, you can talk to clients 
that you give reference to, and mm -hmm. they might be suspicious, there might be other clients you're not giving the reference to. So there's a double-edged sword there, and clients might not be sure about it. But you can still get good information, even though um, you might be suspicious, and I understand that. You still get your information just by connecting with types of clients we've worked in the past with, or worked currently with. So yeah. those are sort of, those sort of the suggestions that um, I would say, uh, and I'm, might, be, might be there's another suggestion I might have in my mind, but I think those are really key ones. Yeah. No, I like that. Yeah. I mean, even as you mentioned, even if the customer reference, you're probably not going to give the, the, the reference to someone that you, you know, didn't have a great experience with because something went wrong, but you know, giving, giving those customer references and having those conversations is really important because you'll learn how to work with a, a vendor and the strengths, weaknesses, when challenges did arise, how did you approach those and making sure that it is a good fit? Cause when you are hiring someone, um, you know, in, in an offshore and outsourced team, they're still part of your team. So you want to make sure that that fit is, is strong. So I, li I like that approach. Definitely. So, so just roll up on it. So one way uh, we actually talk about our, um, the capabilities is to always talk about projects where we had a good fit and projects we had a bad fit and explain what happened in those projects because it's very important. Uh, sometimes you can have a really good fit and sometimes you can have a good, a bad fit. And bad fit is never about technology or capabilities. It's about the, you know, philosophy about working, right? It's mm -hmm. never really about technology because any, any problem or any technology uh, that we were asked to do, we had, you know, chops to do it. But we realized a lot of times, even though we didn't know maybe at the beginning, once we started working with a client, it became apparent that there was just not what we wanted long term, right? Yeah. It's very, so again, like goes back to like, you know, some clients are just used to working with these, um, you know, vendors that just treat them as just another vendor and they build them time and they just put their time. It's more auto automated than what we want it to be. And then they treat them, they treat us the same way they treated those people, which is they supervise us, they you know, micromanage us, and they tell us what to do. It goes back to those features, right? Like, you know, we are the ones who build the features and present the solution uh, versus, you know, so we need to know the problem, we understand the problem, then we propose solution. Some clients still believe that they, you know, have more expertise and better expertise, and we don't, we don't um, necessarily work very, uh, we, we're not the best fit for those clients because they don't, it's not something we can do for them. It's not the best way we can work. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a great point, figuring out who the best fit is, because obviously when you're engaging a client, you want it to be successful as well, right? It's, it's not just sign on as many people as we can. It's, hey, what's going to be the best fit for us team long term and all that stuff. So makes sense. Ned, in, in terms of advice for entrepreneurs, folks just starting out, what advice would you have give to, to someone that was really driven um, just starting a, a new venture? The most important thing is to have resources that you can rely on if you start a company. A resources that will enable you to you know, work on your startup for a few years, right? Um, for a reasonable length without expectations of getting paid mm -hmm. because that's what it takes, right? Now, unfortunately, in our country, we've seen a huge drop in number of businesses started. I mean, there's, there were 
twice as many businesses started during the Carter administration than there are today. So, you know, innovation is really um, dying up, right? I mean, it's, it's, and it's been every decade is lower and lower, right? Uh, and the, the problems are multiple, right? And so there's um, NGN ran for president of, uh, on Democratic ticket. And years ago, he wrote a paper about what makes entrepreneurs successful. And comes, comes down, there are notable exceptions. I'll mention some of them, but it comes down to one thing, and that is, you know, wealth and resources, right? If you're able to take a risk, that means you have resources that will support that endeavor. Most people that don't have those resources, even if they have the greatest idea, they can't just drop everything they're doing. You know, they can't drop their job without savings with their, uh, you know, family supporting them. So when you see a lot of these young entrepreneurs, um, you know, starting companies and getting into like, you know, and, and, you know, I can, you know, there's Silicon Valley is full of them, right? Even, even Siegel of, of, of uh, Snapchat, Jack Dorsey, yeah. even Elon Musk, right? When you admire all these people, you go back and Mark Zuckerberg is a great example. You go back, Bill Gates was one, Reid Hoffman, right? Um, all of them had super privileged backgrounds. You go back and see uh, P Peter Thiel, as yeah, I mentioned, yeah. and they're really privileged, right? Um, and they could do this because, you know, they had private schools, wealthy parents and all that. Uh, and there's exceptions. You know, some of them like jobs, uh, middle class. Ellison dropped out of college, you know, he was, he was just kind of work grinding it out. Bloomberg was another great example, but they're examples. They're not, they're exceptions to the rule, but they're not the rule. That's why they call exceptions, right? Many, yeah. many, many more young people. And the reason you can see so many young people is because of that research. So one thing that I would say the advice I can give is that be prepared to work without pay. So that means like, think about it. where's your health insurance going to come from? How are you going to pay your bills? Um, you know, uh, yeah. You know, all the other things that it comes down to resources. So that's the most important thing. If you have that, right, that is, um, you know, the best you can do. The second best, which is a myth, which is moonlighting. A lot of people think that moonlighting, you know, most, most or a lot of companies start by people moonlighting. Yes, to some extent it's true. Very often than not, people burn out and then don't really go too far. But some people do succeed by moonlight, like, you know, they work after their regular job and they're able to connect with like-minded individuals, founders, and they come together and they build something. But again, there are very much fewer examples of those than of people that just had resources outright and they were able to like, you go out there for years and try one after another after another startup. And success stories we hear are maybe their third or fourth startup or iteration on an idea, right? Not yeah. something they probably started with, right? Yeah. No, I think that's great insight. I mean, I, I believe that student loans are probably one of the biggest things that are going to quell innovation because there's so many folks, young folks that I know that have great ideas, but, you know, have a mountain of student loan debt that they've got to pay on. And so they're going to take that job that they don't necessarily want to be in and have great ideas and aren't able to start that business that, that could be, something that helps change and innovates in our society. So I, I 100% agree with that, that uh, analysis. Absolutely. That's, that's, and the healthcare, you know, think about it. The, the, the biggest problem, not just, you know, in terms of 
it's not just your your um you know a lack of resources it's also social mobility right mm-hmm. and that comes down to like you know even if you want to move around and start a company you're tied to a company like healthcare right not having once you quit the job if you're you know employer provides your health care then you're bound to that so that prevents a lot more people you know a lot more people will be out um for example a wild care came out you had a huge spike of people starting new businesses because now they had the the you know public option so so that was really good for entrepreneurship because and you wouldn't think connect those two directly but it was really direct correlation because people had some safety net, right? They had healthcare while they were starting their company without income. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation about healthcare in the U S and how just twisted that is. But, uh, yeah, it's, those resources are really important. Net focus for me is, is on financial well-being, And that's really where my passion lies and entrepreneurship, I think is a, a one way to improve well-being. I'm curious, how would you describe your relationship with money? Ooh, it's complex. Um, I do think about money all the time, I think. And, um, you know, I came from another country. Um, my parents were rich, actually middle class. And it was, you know, uh, it was former Yugoslavia, now Bosnia. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I went to public schools. We didn't even have private schools. So very different system. I, but I did go to the best schools. So um, very early, I wanted to um, go into fields that made money because I was attracted to money. So I was chasing engineering, partly because I was just good at it and bored with most other subjects, but also partly because I knew it would get me a good job, right? As I yeah thinking of like my future. Um, but now my relationship with money is like I, you know, when you accumulate some uh, assets, then you're, you have to, you're kind of like constantly watching, the, watching your asses and trying to invest. It takes a lot of energy time and takes a lot of learning about how to invest, how to, you know, manage. Um, so it is a, almost a job on, on top of your regular job. Um, and I do see when things are going well, for example, in the market and assets go up, you know, and you see the benefit and you, you make more money or you make, you know, your salary goes up or you, your income goes up. There's this sense of relief and sense of like um, openness to, you know, doing something new. So I think money is directly to me correlated with ability to be free, to create, because I'm not worried about it, right? Yeah. And creation really comes from a place of, you know, they say necessity is the mother of all creation, but I, I, I don't know if I know anybody who has been so stressed out that started creating great ideas. Because when you're stressed out, and, and necessity is like when you have nothing, like you, you really are in a, in a bad situation. That's how I think of necessity. But also necessity could be like, you know, I, I had no way out, which again, could be a stressful situation. But to me, it's much better to be in a situation where you don't have a lot of worries than you have. Because then you start to really be creative and think about things, kind of like Maslow's uh, pyramid of needs. Yeah. So to me, money does control how I think and feel, which is unfortunate. But at the same time, um, I also get benefit when you know money money does well for me, and then it gives me freedom to really create more things and better things. So it is a very uh, 
I'm very connected to it. And just given that I didn't come from wealth and didn't come from, you know, money, um, you know, I earned everything I have. As a matter of fact, I literally did coming to this country. And I was able, very lucky to go on scholarships to the best universities and get all these other scholarships in, in addition to that. Um, so, you know, you talk about student loan, super lucky, super privileged. Yeah. And I, I feel privileged. I didn't come from a privileged background, but the fact that I didn't have to pay tuition to private colleges is, is immense like that, that in yeah. itself. Uh, so money t- definitely had a big impact on my career and how, however, I, you know, when I was starting companies, um, when you enter, when your, your money flow is kind of like a up and down, right? You, you don't have a steady salary because that's the idea, right? You make, you can make one year, you can make tons of money, another year can make very little and so you have to be ready and prepared for those ups and downs sure the best way i learn how is to really be uh good at spending and but the problem is you know i you know i want to say this because it's really getting to me because a lot of times i see a lot of people talking about um financial literacy and all that yes there is definitely financial literacy at some level when you have enough money to manage it, to be financially literate. When you talk about to people that have nothing, and when I see some of these corporate spreadsheets that show how a person could live off of X amount of money, nobody can live off of that amount of money. I know, and everyone knows, but it's just a slap in the face of people that don't have enough money. And the biggest problem to financial literacy is income inequality is so high. Yeah. We still have people that are below poverty, 50% of Americans, a lot of them out of job. And, you know, financial literacy will not help those people. It's not because they don't have enough to even start to, they, they need money just to survive. So every dollar they get, they spend. So yeah. there's nothing that financial literacy will not, because they can't reduce costs anymore, right? Yeah. Nothing to reduce, right? What you need is a better... Uh, distribution of income and, and better income because minimum wage is nothing close to what you actually need for minimum wage today. Yeah. And then when you have that, and then also all the debt that we have, including student debt and people that don't have uh, health coverage settled with that debt, you can't be financially literate when you're literally having hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. That yeah. doesn't work. You know, how, how are you going to decide between eating food and medication or eating food and putting clothes on your child or putting a gas in a car or, or paying for your phone so you can actually, I mean, that, that just, you can't make decisions like that. That's not financial literacy. So there's a difference between that. Um, and I went into, on a, on a side tangent here, because I really want to emphasize that at some point, it doesn't even matter whether you're financially literate. It only matters whether you have enough to have any savings at the end of the day or a month. Once yeah. you do, then you can start to think about financial literacy. Yeah. No, I think that it makes a ton of sense. Like, yeah, I mean, if you, if you have no money, it doesn't matter how much you save or invest because you have, you have nothing to save or invest. You've got to get by. So I think that's, you know, a really important, important piece that I think that the financial, I don't know, community in general kind of overlooks and focuses on, well, let's just look at the top, you know, two thirds of the population and we'll just kind of ignore this other third. Um, and they do, they do these unrealistic spreadsheets. And I remember just somebody just recently posted, uh, it's been on social media, where a person off of 
you know, they live over less than 2000 a month and then they put their rent in, and, and they don't even include anything for things like healthcare costs or gas or like they completely take out all the essential, like, and like, oh, this is like, you can leave and you can save seven bucks at the, at the end of the month. I'm like, no, that's completely, completely bogus. It's a lie. It, and, and they're perpetuating because, you know, oh, you can live off of this. It is not true. It is not true. Um, yeah. yeah. So financial literacy has to start um, when you give enough uh, to, when people have enough to actually live uh, with dignity mm-hmm. and they have enough to put, I mean, even hedge fund guys are so scared of this income inequality, right? Starting from Ray Dalio um, to just a recently um, Pershing Square partner saying the guy who just made a big um, bet against the market in March, he made like two billion, 2.1 billion off of 20 million. Uh, it was a big yeah. bet in the world, in, in, in history. So you know what he said? He said every kid at, the, at birth should be given money into a, should be invested in the stock market. We should invest for them. Government, the country should invest for them. And at the interest rate, at by the time they retire, they will be all millionaires. It's like, yes, that's a good step in the right direction. That's exactly what should be done because not many people can even afford to play the market. Only rich can play the market, right? Yeah. Rich people can't. So I I actually read an article that was interesting that um, I think Britain had done that for a little while where they'd set aside, I can't remember what it was, but it was uh, like 2000 pounds or something like that for babies that were born. And New Jersey, I think currently has a bill that's similar to that. I don't know likelihood of that passing, but something similar where it was like, you know, we'll commit a small amount of money for, for babies that are born and there's no commitment to continue to invest, which probably would, is what's needed to get to that compounding million by the time that you're 18 or 20 years old, by the time you're an adult. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, income inequality is a huge problem. There's a book called, uh, there's a book by Will and Ariel Durant. They're these historians, they're, I think they're brothers too. Um, and they've just done all this um, very interesting work. And they wrote one book that essentially summarizes the majority of the work that they've done throughout their entire career. And one of the key takeaways from that is, I think it's called just the lessons from history is the name of the book. And the big thing is that when Rome fell, when all of the big um, like empires fell, it was because inequality became too great. Yes, I, I know for, um, and you have a book behind me, I don't know if you can see it, but um, it's called Rome in Seven Sackings. And I know exactly, I mean, very interested in the history of Rome because it really follows similar trajectory with the United States. And we are definitely in a downward slope, very downward slope, where China is taking over as the world power and our currency is going to be um, replaced with something else where at some point because of the, the all, the, all the fiscal stimulus, all the money that's been printed, it's just going, it's, has flooded the financial system. Uh, Bill Ackerman is the guy, the hedge fund guy that I was talking about. I just want to mention him because I thought it was a good idea. But yes, you're right. Um, every crisis, and you could go both two ways. One, we can settle uh, reasonably and we cannot say, hey, we need to say, do all these things that need to uh, decrease income inequality, including raising taxes and giving better wages. And there's always mechanisms to do it. And it's always been done in the history, as you said, uh, or you can go the other way by revo- way of revolution. And we know how that ended in some countries. It's also successful, but you know, with 
there's always one side that loses more than the other. So I, I believe a lot of these billionaires are recognizing the reckoning that's coming. And so um, if you don't uh, know or you haven't read, I recommend Ray Dalio's book. He's actually writing book and publishing on LinkedIn as he's writing it. I believe he's got two chapters out and he's talking about historical, um, you know, ups and downs, debt um, and, uh, and um, uh, uh, credit cycles, uh, money, debt and credit cycles. So you can see everything from when Dutch was an empire taken over by British, taken over by US and I taking over by China. You can see all the progression and how everything always went into the same cycle. It's about 75 to 80 year cycle where all the, you know, the, the power changes, right? And, and this currency follows power change and it happens very, very predictably, in very predictable way and pattern. So, um, and he's done a lot of research work with historians. So I recommend reading that because he's the one who says there's a huge income inequality and we may have either revolution, uh, but if you're smart, we may just do the right thing and fix the income inequality before we have it. So. But those are the two options that he's he's seeing. He doesn't see anything else happening. Yeah, no, I yeah I, I agree. I'll have to check that out. I haven't seen the the new one. I've read his principles book, but I haven't read. I yeah. didn't realize he was writing that one. Ray Dalio was so. Mm -hmm. Ned, last couple things. Um, getting back to you, what's the best investment that you've made? I you know I tend to think not of myself because I like I think a lot of people think of themselves when they talk about the best investment because I would you know I said I was lucky and I'd say the system invested in me as much as I invested in myself so I can't take all the credit and I won't but I believe investing in my daughters is the best investment I made um, so that is I'm very proud of it obviously it's very I'm attached to them but yeah. I because they're two, they're, you know, two girls growing up in this world and knowing that, you know, we have women, you know, they constitute 51% of the population and only 5% of the CEOs in Fortune 500 uh, it, it is a terrible problem to have, right? And we see certain small changes going to happen, but we have to have like leaps and bounds. So I want my daughters to, you know, when they come out of age, I want them to be in the world that had, uh, has a lot more opportunities. Um, so I'm following um, organizations like Chief, which is the women's organization in New York City, with all the like uh, CEO women, women that are CEOs or VP level and above, that are just like helping each other raise um, their statute in their careers. They um, have seminars and whatnot. Um, and, and workshops. So I'm following organizations like that. And I always, in my um, panels, actually I had two panels I organized recently for MIT Enterprise Forum of New York City, which I'm a board member of, and also technology chair for. Um, two that I organized, one was in cybersecurity, right? Mm -hmm. um, and three women on it, and three men, so equal. Yeah. And I had following that with a venture, uh, the future of venture capital panel, where I had two women and four men, uh, was much harder to find equal balance, because that that industry itself, this industry, and we touched upon that, is is, is totally just old white men, like mostly, right? I mean, now yeah. the companies are obviously doing a lot of things, but even if they're putting women, uh, more women into the uh, into VC companies. 
I also look, I start to kind of do, I'm, I'm a numbers guy. So I'm like, okay, so you have a third of women on the board, but you have about 80% of founders that are women still in your cohort. So why the discrepancy, right? Yeah. So we're still a long way to go, you know, to correct things because the whole point of putting more women on the boards is to get more women who are founders, right? So yeah. if, you're not, if you're not getting what, you know, if you're not meeting your, your goals, then what's going on, right? It's still, yeah. But yeah. So that's like long story, long answer to the short question. Investing in my daughters is the best investment I've made. And you know, one just went to boarding school. Another is um, going next year. She's pre prepping with her SSATs. And boy, those those tutors <laughs> are not cheap. I tell you, those tutors. Oh, yeah. I never had to. I never had a tutor for anything. Thank God. I mean, when I came here, you know, I had a lot of great. Um, you know, I, I knew math, I knew science, I was very good at, I never needed one. Uh, but these SATs, these tutors, I mean, and the tests that they're taking, you know, they have to prep up because it's like they totally new science, like how to take a test and they oh, yeah. a lot of money. So I'm, but I'm glad to invest in that because it's totally worth it. Totally worth it. Yeah, absolutely also, not. One, one thing, I wouldn't say that it's an investment per se as an asset, but it's an investment in the quality of life. I like to spend time on vacations and we try to take vacations of uh, several vacations a year, at least two uh, that we can uh, with our work schedules. And we like to take our girls somewhere outside the country and we typically do a European trip every year. So we try to go a different country. And it, obviously that's, that's another investment, but in quality of life, in quality of experience, you can't, you can't teach that. And, that is going to stay with them for life. So that's another investment I like to make. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that answer and investing in other, other people, your daughters. I think that's a great, a great way to frame that question or to you know, answer that question. Nat, on the flip side, what would you say is the dumbest money mistake that you've made? <laughs> dumbest money mistake? Um, well, there's one that I felt pretty dumb about. Um, I don't know if it's the dumbest, but I, this is the one I had to do with my business. I, uh, you know, as you start to do so well, you want to be able to delegate more things. And so at some point I was like, well, you know, the way I generate um, business and, and now it's like a lot of referrals and word of mouth and, you know, me talking to people. So that was pretty much traditionally how we uh, found our clients. So at some point I wanted to do some more automation, some more inbound marketing. So I hired this consultant, the expert, right? <laughs> Boy, did I make a mistake there. I felt so dumb that, you know, I was convinced that this person is going to figure out how to market my business. And, you know, I had very, I'm very, you know, like a suspicious about how you're going to learn essentials of my business so quickly, you know, and I'm yeah. figuring out how to pitch my business. And you're going to do that so quickly, then you're going to use multiple social platforms to blast the message. And then suddenly in my LinkedIn inbox, I'll get all these leads that, you know, I won't know what to do with. That's the promise. And, oh, the best part is like you pay the retainer and it's not based on results. I'm mm -hmm. like, that doesn't sound right. So anyway, so I paid this, all this money for the retainer. I get this guy to work. And first month, I don't see anything. I get some trickling leads and then nothing to do with my business. I'm like, oh yeah, we're just refining the engine. Second month, 
same thing. We're still refining the engine, but you know, he's, he's getting paid. And, and then I'm like, by the third month, and I, not, only, not only I'm paying him, he had me pay for, you know, using lead pages and other things that are very tools and yeah. tools, right? That you actually need. He didn't pay for them. I had to pay for them. I had to buy all the licenses so he can run his machinery, his, his, yeah. you know, per, <laughs> perpetual motion engine, you know, it doesn't exist. So anyway, <laughs> I was just letting him do his thing, you know, respectful of his expertise and, but then by the third month, the third month, you know, he still couldn't refine enough to get some meaningful leads. And I just said, you know, this is just not worth it. You, he's like, it just takes more time. I'm like, yeah, it's great for you because you're making all this money. <laughs> by the third month, you can, if you're still getting people that, you know, bartenders and I don't know, students and, you know, people that sell horses and my business had nothing to do with it. If you're still getting me those people in my inbox, you, you're doing something terribly wrong and you, you those should be outliers, right? And yeah. not in my inbox, right? So you're not, you're, not, you're, con, you're not converging at all. Your regression model doesn't work. It's, it, it will not regress or it will not converge to the optimum. So that was my bad mistake, money mistake. So I cut it, you know, every <laughs> month I was out and never again. Uh, <laughs> it's a good lesson to learn. Yeah, it's a yeah, I mean, zero benefit. I spent also a lot of time oh, uh, yeah. with it, not just money, but time. Gotcha. Well, Ned, thanks so much for, for opening up and sharing. I want to leave you with the last word. So please, um, you know, last word and then also let the audience know how, that they, how they can connect with you after the conversation. Sure. Um, but, you know, last words are uh, typically about, you know, what I can give in terms of advice, um, I would really just um, encourage people to find ways to, and I'm assuming I'm talking to mostly entrepreneurs, really find ways to, to find ways to work with others when they're starting a company. The most important thing about founders is when they work with other people, it is very rare that a single person can start a company. So I would yeah. say no matter what idea they have, no matter how strongly they feel about their idea, First thing, first step before you look for resources or money or anything like that, look for people that you can work with and look for people that have a very different opinions and backgrounds than yours. It's really important. You know, it's not just, you know, saying it like, you know, we hear that a lot, but it's really important because you have to be challenged and you have to have diversity of opinions. So that would be my main advice. I already talked about resources. So, um, I totally understand when people can't start a company because they don't have resources. So another thing is don't feel bad about it. You and then both where 99% of people are, right? You can't start because there's so many obligations you have and you don't have, you know, family money to back you. So don't worry about it. Uh, just try your best to either, you know, work part-time on the side, but at the same time, before you even start any work, find people because they will be helping you, um, you know, with your idea, they will be giving you moral support, which is the most important thing, better, more important than your, the strength of your idea or strength of your talent is the moral support you're gonna get. So find other people, number one step, find other people first mm -hmm. before you really get into developing your idea. Perfect, and Ned, how can we connect with you? Uh, how can the audience connect with you offline? Okay, so um, best way uh, if you want to connect with me is to email me at ned 
at capeandevelopment.com. And that's spelled as C-A-P-E-A-N-N development. Um, I, you can also call me, 781-267-9763. I'd be happy to take calls and inquiries. Perfect. And we'll link to all this in the show notes as well, so you can find it there. And uh, Ned, thanks so much for sitting down. This was a lot of fun, wide-ranging conversation, and thanks, thanks so much for your time. William, I really appreciate your time and thoughtful discussion and, uh, you know, you preparing this for your audience and can't wait to uh, hear the whole thing. Thank you. That's it for today's episode of the Silicon Alley podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with the Ned Lamagora. I love Ned's insights into the much talked about minimum viable product and really clearly defining how to prove out your concept. You know, what really stood out to me about that in particular is the need to always come back to the problem and how very simple and basic the MVP can and should be. And before we head out today, please let Ned and I know what you thought of today's episode via social media or leave a review on Apple Podcasts calling out this episode. And of course, share the podcast with others who you think would enjoy it as well. That's it for today. I'm William Glass, CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and of course, your host of the Silicon Alley Podcast. Have a fantastic day. You got no time to waste, but still you hesitate. Caught in a circle.